Good morning. My name is Peter Knotts. I'm one of the pastors here, and we want to welcome you to Victory Life Church. Thanks for being with us for worship. We're so glad that you are here. Our mission here at Victory Life is to join the story, live the story, and tell the story. And so we're talking about the story of Jesus, the story that he's writing about bringing us back to him. Uh, And so that's what we're passionate about. That's what we want to be about as a church. Uh, And we invite you to be part of that mission with us. If you are new to our church, we want to invite you to fill out one of the cards on the seat backs in front of you. You can drop that off at our welcome desk and you'll get a free gift there. Uh, We would love to connect with you if you're looking for a church home, uh, if you uh, have any prayer requests, if there's any way we can be of service to you, we would love to connect with you and get to know you that way. So they will actually have a free gift for you if you bring that card over to the desk. If you're worshiping online with a special welcome to you, thanks for joining us. Uh, We would invite you to go to our website, vlchurch.com. There's a banner at the top that says new here. You can fill that out to get connected with us as well. Two announcements for you today. Uh, We have Vision Sunday and the annual church picnic coming up at the end of August on August 27th. Uh, So we intentionally put both of these things together on one day because we want to celebrate the future of our church. So Vision Sunday is when we talk about our vision for the next year that we feel like the Lord has laid on our heart. Uh, And then also our picnic is when we celebrate how God has been faithful over the many years of our church. So Vision Sunday and the picnic coming up on August 27th. Picnic will be right after second service, and it'll be a great time right out back here by the pavilion. So we'd love to have you for that. We also have the men's retreat coming up, and this is for both youth and our adult men, and we would love to have you come out to that. That is from September 8th through the 10th. You will not want to miss it, guys. Uh, It's a very relaxed time. Uh, It's not super structured. There's a lot of time to just kind of hang out and have fun. Uh, You can shoot guns if you're into that, spend time outdoors, go hiking, uh, play cards, campfires, all kinds of fun things. Uh, There'll be testimonies in the evenings where you can hear from other men in our church uh, and hear about their walk with Jesus. Uh, So we would love to invite you to sign up for that, and you can sign up today either on our website or you can speak with Bill Anderson. Uh, He's right over here if you don't know who that is. He's one of our elders, uh, and he will be by our welcome desk in the lobby. You can talk to him if you're interested in getting signed up for that. So again, it is September 8th through the 10th, and the cost for that is just $95 for the whole weekend. That will take care of everything. So we would love to have you come out. Next, we come to our part of our service where we worship through our giving. Uh, so worship is multifaceted, and one of the ways that we worship is through showing the Lord uh, that he is, he is Lord over our life through our, our pocketbook, right? Through uh, submitting to him in that way. And so uh, if you have uh, worshipful giving to do today, we would invite you to do that through uh, texting, through our website, or you can do that as you exit the sanctuary today. Thank you for your giving to support the work of Jesus here at our church. Next, I want to invite you to come with us into a time of worship through singing. So if you could stand and pray with me before we head into that part of our service. Lord, we come here to worship you. We worship you for saving us, Lord. God, we've been learning in in Romans about how we don't deserve the salvation that you offer to us, that we deserve death, that we deserve to be punished for our sin, but instead you have given us salvation. Instead, you have made a way for us to be in relationship with you again. God, we thank you for that salvation. We praise you for that salvation. 
And in response to that, Lord, we say, come and have your way in our lives. May our lives, not just now as we sing these songs, but may our lives all throughout the week be honoring and worshipful to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, church. Let's worship the Lord this morning.
Bless his name this morning. Talk to 
you. Lord, we bless your name, that name that is above every other name. Lord, we have reason to worship you. Lord, to sing your praises. Lord, you give and take away sometimes, but Lord, you always restore. Lord, there is hope, there is peace, there is love in that name of Jesus for us because of what you've done. And, Lord, we know that you are powerful enough to change any situation. That your love is so great towards us. Lord, that we can bless you. We can praise you. We can take joy in our salvation. Even when the world around us may seem like chaos, we can take joy in you. So, Lord, we, we sing what a beautiful name it is. What a wonderful name it is and powerful name, that name of Jesus. So, Lord, we worship you. We praise you. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you this morning and look to you in your name. You were the word at the beginning, one with God the Lord most high. Your hidden glory in creation, now revealed in you are Christ. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful What a wonderful name it is. 
Lord Jesus, we give you praise and honor in this place today because that power that has been displayed has been displayed in each one of our life. Once we were not a people, now we're a people. Once we lived in darkness, now we live in your glorious light. Once we were marred by sin, now we are declared righteous before God our Father each one of us with a place at the table, not because of our merit, but because of your work on the cross. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise for who you are and what you've done today and the great love with which you have loved us. We bless your name today. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, you may be seated today. It is our privilege in this place to be able to participate in communion or as some of you may know it, the Lord's Supper, where we take the bread and the cup and remember the great sacrifice that Jesus made on each one of our behalf. The Bible tells us that according to the word of the Lord, we are to do this. We are to do it regularly because it remembers the great work that Christ did on the cross to bring us salvation, and it proclaims our Lord's death until he comes. One of the little-known aspects of this thing called communion is that Jesus is not taking it today. Even though he exists resurrected, he's not participating in communion today. Only we are. In fact, Jesus is in heaven today, happy, honored that we bless his name through communion today, but he's not taking it. I want to read to you from Luke chapter 22 something important about what we're about to do. He said to his disciples on the night he instituted this Lord's Supper, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What's the fulfillment that he's waiting for? What is it that he's anticipating with all his heart? You. He's waiting for you to take it with him. And what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, this is his great love for us. That the Lord Jesus, by his cross and by his resurrection, has purchased us each a place at the table. A place at God's table. What do you wear that day? What do you bring as an acceptable sacrifice? How do you say unto the creator of the universe, I have a place at your table? The answer is you bring nothing. You wear only the garments that the Lord Jesus has provided for you. And your place has been earned.
by the Lord Jesus Christ already. My sin was great. His love was greater. So today, as the servers come, I want to remind you of a great truth today. That you have the opportunity to proclaim the Lord's death and all the work that it represents until the day he comes for you. And you get to participate in communion with him. Once again, not because of anything you've done, but because of what he has done. So in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to exit your seats and come out the center aisle. You can come and receive the elements and then return to your seats by the side aisle and hold on to them until we have prayed over the bread and the cup. But as you are coming and as our worship team is playing and as you're returning to your seats today, I just want to ask you what you can bring to this Lord's Supper. How can you come to this particular table today? And I would remember today that he died for your sin. Isaiah 53 says he was crushed for our iniquities. So perhaps a wonderful thing to do before we partake of the elements today is to ask the Lord to do over us what he died for, which is to make us clean, to forgive us our sins. So as you come in a spirit of reverence today, I would invite you to say, Lord Jesus, if there is any way that I'm not clean before you, any way in which I am separated from you today by my sin. I confess it, and I ask you to forgive me, because I recognize in taking communion today the great love with which you have loved me. Would you stand? Would you come? Would you receive the elements? If you are unable today, just lift a hand, and we will come to you.
Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that our place at the table was purchased at a costly price. For he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, our Lord Jesus was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, you lived ultimately to die, rejected and alone, carrying the sins of a sinful world in your body. You gave your mortal flesh on our behalf, and we thank you that that mortal flesh given on our behalf had submitted himself perfectly to God as Father. You are the only one whose punishment, whose chastisement could bring us peace with God. We thank you, Lord, for your broken body on the cross today. Let us eat together. Jesus, you were pierced for our transgressions. Your blood poured out. A sacrifice unto God of precious blood that could cover the sins of the world, that could cover our sin. Powerful enough to give each one of us a seat at the table of God, hope of eternity with him. We thank you, Lord, for your powerful and precious blood. It reaches to the highest mountain. It flows to the lowest valley and reminds each one of us that when we stand before God, we stand in your righteousness alone. Thank you for your precious blood. Let us drink together. Father God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to be the perfect reflection of who you are and your heart for each one of us. Thank you, Father, for sending your son to die on a cross for us. We thank you, Lord, that we have new life in Christ Jesus today. And Father, we look forward to the day that we sit at your table with our Lord and Savior. We remind ourselves of all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, there is a small 
hole <laughs> on the back of the seat in front of you, and you are welcome to place your cup there so you will not be encumbered with it for the remainder of the service. Uh, somebody was thinking of communion when they designed these church chairs, so we're happy for that. I'm Pastor Matt, and we're so glad you're worshiping with us this morning. Before we adults dive into the Word today, I would like to dismiss our children. So young disciples, you may head on down the hall and uh, spend some time diving into the Word yourselves with Miss Jody. We look forward to that for you. If you're new to Victory Life, our children's church program runs concurrent with our sermon. And so if you want to accompany your kids down the hall, find out where they're going, you're welcome to do that. But it seems like most of them know exactly where they're going and what to expect. Hey folks, if you have your Bibles today, whether on your phone or in print, I invite you to turn in them to Romans chapter 7. We've spent the summer in Romans, and the summer, sadly, is quickly drawing to a close. And that's always signaled by the sale of pencils at Mark's. Really, it's, it's coming. So we're going to spend today in Romans 7. Pastor Peter's going to close our Romans series, The Good Good News, in chapter 8 next week. And then, as he mentioned earlier, we'll be on to Vision Sunday and talking about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do, we believe in our church in the days, weeks, and months to come. I am very sad about tomorrow. Tomorrow's the first day of school for my oldest, and something horrible will happen at 3.30. No, it's not me picking her up. It's what she says to me when I pick her up. She will look at me and say, Dad, I have six syllabi, and you have to read them all and then signed that you read them. That's horrible. Why would any educator do this to parents? It's a really mean thing. I did used to read syllabi. I used to have to do that. In fact, I have stress every time I open a syllabus because when I open a syllabus, it reminds me of having to keep my scholarship in college and the stress and fear and the anxiety that that produced. So I will open a syllabus tomorrow, and it will tell me all of the ways in which my daughter can fail. How she can fail morally, how she can fail ethically, and then all the ways in which she could fail if she did not get enough work done by the end of the year. And every assignment for the year will be laid out in the syllabus. And my mind will be going, how is she going to get all this done? Oh my goodness, there is so much here. Does this teacher know that there's five other syllabus, syllabi coming? Do they think their class is the only class? Because that syllabus is cold and mean-spirited and bitter. So I'll be reading the syllabus, and then I'll read another one, and then I'll read another one, and then I'll read another one, and I'll pretty much scan the sixth one. But the long story is there's all the ways that you can fail, all the ways that you can get in trouble, all the ways that you can earn detention, all of the little idiosyncratic things that drive certain teachers crazy. And then there's all the work for the year, and you just think, how, how is she ever going to get all of this done? There's so much to do here. Certainly, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And, and here's the truth. There's nothing really to be concerned about, is there? The syllabus is simply the written code. But behind that syllabus is a real person, a teacher, an educator, someone who will spend time with my daughter, someone who will teach my daughter, someone who will lay out new concepts and ways to do things step by step so that she will get all the work done and all the things will take place. And there might be some correction along the way, as outlined in the syllabus, but ultimately there's a person behind it. And when the person behind it truly has her best intents or in mind for my daughter, then everything's going to work out just fine. Well, Paul in chapter 7 of Romans is going to tell us that we've died to the syllabus. 
that the written code is no longer that which drives us. It's a person, it's the personhood of Jesus that ultimately becomes our teacher and our guide and that which makes it all okay. And I want to talk today from Romans 7 about the last aspect of the good, good news that I get to share with you. And I'm going to put it in very succinct terms, just one big point today, though it's kind of a run-on sentence. And the point is this, the gospel is a person, God is relational, and good fruit comes from within that personal relationship. That's the good news today, that the syllabus is not the end-all, be-all, The person behind the syllabus is the end-all, be-all, and that's the one that we truly need to seek to do everything that God has for us to do in this life. We're going to spend most of our time in verse 4 of chapter 7 today, but we're going to be reading 4 through 6 to give us ourselves full context. So let's dive right in. Romans chapter 7, verse 4 and following. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit unto death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way. Of the written code. Now, for those of us who have ever had Romans kind of expounded upon for us before, we're sitting there going, yes, amen. And for those of us who have never been taught through Romans before, we're like, what did he just say? Which is ultimately why it's so important to get a hold of the good, good news that's here in Romans. Now, you probably saw some language that was familiar to you there. Remember last week, we talked about the idea that we are now dead to sin. The moment we were baptized, we declared to the Lord, I'm dead to sin, and I am alive to God through Christ Jesus. Reminder, if you've never been baptized, you need to do that. The Lord Jesus commanded you to do it. You want to get baptized here, all you got to do is go on the Church Center app, go to our website, vlchurch.com, or just take a card from the seat back in front of you and say, I want to get baptized, put your name on it, go to the Welcome Center, because baptism signifies that you're dead to sin. But it's kind of surprising to hear Paul say that we're dead to the law. I mean, the law, the the ethical and moral standards of God were dead to that? That seems a little odd. I mean, honestly, we all need an ethical standard. We all need a moral standard. We all need to have some rule to follow. But Paul says you're dead to that in light of Christ. That's That's some weird stuff. Paul has ultimately been telling us throughout the book of Romans that we are now in relationship to this person called Jesus And he is the way, ultimately, that we relate to God. And the problem that Paul was encountering in the first century world was that many of his cohorts, many of his brothers and sisters in Christ, many of the people with whom he'd been raised, they were relating to God primarily through the rules, primarily through the law. And why not? I mean, Jesus came to fulfill the law, did he not? Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies and the foreshadowing of the Old Testament to let us know that he was the one who was going to bring this law to its fulfillment. Yet Paul says we've died to the ethical and moral standards of God. Is that truly what he means here? Well, ultimately, Paul has been laying out this concept throughout the book of Romans that 
we were not bearing fruit for God. We weren't relating to God correctly. We weren't understanding all that God is and all that God has for us. And if we continue to see our relationship with God primarily through the lens of law, we're going to get overwhelmed. We're going to have nothing but questions, nothing but fear and frustration. In the same way that, that if I look at a class and say, the class is the syllabus, there's going to be nothing but questions, fear, uh, concern, frustration. But if I recognize behind the syllabus is a person who's going to lead me through all of this, then there's hope. Then there's opportunity. Now, this has great context because we live in an American culture today that can be very anti-law. Paul lived at a time, though, that people were very pro-law. People thought, I'm going to please God through keeping the law. In fact, by the time of Christ and Paul, the Jewish rabbis, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, they had codified the law of the Old Testament that's found in the Ten Commandments, the book of the law, the rest of, Le- of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. They'd codified the law into over 600 laws. Now you might say, some of you, are, uh, some of you just shook their heads, 600, yeah, that's a lot of laws. But when you really get into reading those laws, and you've been, which I did, I got to Law 90 before I quit this week for the sake of time. When you get into reading those laws, you just kind of nod your head like, yep, that makes sense. Yep, that's moral. Yep, that's ethical. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, we should do that. Yes, we should refrain from that. Like, you're not going to, if you were to read those today, most of it, you would go, well, yeah. Now, some of it wouldn't make any sense to us because there were laws that had to do with being a Jewish person in Israel in ancient times. There were cultural laws because God created a culture for these former nation of slaves. There were also laws that had to do with worshiping in a temple or a tabernacle. But we're not in a temple today. There's not a brazen altar sitting over there for us to make sacrifices on, so a lot of those aren't incumbent upon us either. But there's still all these laws. They're good, they're moral, they're ethical. Like, for instance, Jesus found himself in conflict with the Pharisees often over the expression of the Sabbath law, that we should honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's found right in the Ten Commandments. And the Pharisees would say, Jesus, you've got to keep it this way. And Jesus would say, what? No, absolutely not. You guys are off. That's not how you keep the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus just does a mic drop moment with the Pharisees and says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, by the way. So don't tell me how to follow my Father's law. I'll tell you how to follow my Father's law. Now, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It doesn't seem that tough to keep. But within 100 years of Jesus, the commentaries on the law were so voluminous that there were 24 chapters just in the Talmud alone about how to keep the Sabbath. 24 chapters about one law. You see, this is the problem with law. This is the problem with the written code. This is the problem with codifying everything. It grows and it grows, and it grows. And someone adds this little caveat to it, and somebody adds this little thing to it, and somebody goes, oh, we hadn't been challenged in this way, so we need to go ahead and and write a new rule to go with that rule because the old rule was decent. We're going to keep the old rule because we don't want to expunge the old rule, but then we're going to add the new rule to it. And this is the world into which Jesus and Paul were thrust. Now, the law is not bad. But it's not a perfect reflection of God. Jesus is the perfect reflection of God. Isn't that what Paul's trying to get us to? Let's read verse 4 again. Likewise, my brothers, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ 
so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. See, the law is not necessarily bad. The law is just not the primary way to relate to God. Jesus is. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jesus said to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen the law, what you've really seen is God's character through a prism. You ever seen light uh, through a prism? All of a sudden, that beam of white light becomes all of these different shades on the spectrum of color. And the problem was, at Jesus' time, everybody was so focused on indigo. They were so focused on building out indigo and doing indigo rightly and then saying, look at how I've done indigo. Aren't I all right with you, God? And Jesus comes along and says, you ain't doing indigo well. In fact, your pride, your arrogance about how well you're doing indigo, shocking to heaven. Ultimately, you need to relate to me. And if you relate to me, we'll make sure that you do indigo rightly. That's what Paul's getting at here. That there was pride in the law, there's arrogance in the law, there's, there's fighting in the law, there's, there's oversaturation of the law. But Jesus wants us to be in relationship with him. Paul uses the analogy of marriage in verse 1 through 3 of this chapter. He says, you were once married to the law. It was the way through which you had a relationship with God. You're dead to that now, and you're free to be in a relationship with Jesus. He is now how you relate to God. That's ultimately what we're after, because the law, verse 4, didn't bear fruit. And life in Jesus does. Because the gospel, the good news is a person. God is relational, and good fruit comes from within that personal relationship. So to backtrack just a minute, the rules are not the primary way to relate to God. The primary way to relate to God is to belong to Jesus. Christianity is to be about relationship, a personal relationship to the one to whom we belong. Now that's language that gets us evangelicals in trouble in culture today. People mock us for saying personal relationship with Jesus. We get mocked for that. We also get mocked for, I'm a born-again Christian, even though Jesus said you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. We get mocked for language like that, as if it's somehow weird to think that we can personally relate to God. Why is that odd? Why do people focus on that and center on that and, and try to tell us that having a personal relationship with God is somewhat weird? I mean, if you were to read any study today, you would find that most Americans are spiritual. That doesn't mean they follow a particular religion. But the concept of spiritual is, is there is something beyond me that I can relate to in some way. Yet we in Christ, as Christians are sometimes lulled to sleep and telling ourselves that, you know what, the primary way to relate to God is just to learn more, learn more, learn more, learn more, learn more. And if I can learn more, learn more, learn more, learn more, learn more, I can relate to God. But my brothers and sisters, you can read the syllabus backwards and forwards and forwards and backwards, but unless the teacher enlightens you, there is no hope. Because you're going to go off in a direction that the teacher never meant you to go. You're going to fulfill assignments that the teacher never meant for you to do. And if you submit those assignments, the teacher will look at you and go, what in the world is this? This has nothing to do with what I asked you to do. 
You needed to sit at my feet and learn from me in relationship and allow that relationship to drive what you do and what you refrain from. And so I ask you today, are you in a personal relationship to Christ where he is leading you through that which he wants you to know and understand and do? And my fear for many of us today is that we are in a personal relationship to the church. We're in personal relationship to church people. But we're not always in personal relationship to the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again because I think that this is a, a great concern if we're looking at chapter 4 of Romans. That we have a personal relationship to the church, a personal relationship to church people, but we feel no real belonging to Jesus. And Paul says in verse 4 of Romans chapter 7, we belong to him. Or as we learned weeks ago in verse, or chapter 5, the love of Christ has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that our relationship with Jesus is real and powerful and felt. And the problem is, I believe there are Christians sitting in many of our churches today that are still under the law. And what I mean by that is this. Some of you are sitting here today and you're trying to clean up your act. And that's why you're in the seats. I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to be a better person. I want my kids to be good people. And I respect that. I think that's wonderful. And I think if you hear the word of God and faith comes by hearing that there is the potential that that could turn into a relationship with Christ. But the question is not whether or not you're cleaning up your act. The question is, are you growing in your relationship? Are you relating to God through rule keeping and trying to keep the rules and learning the rules and learning new ways to keep the rules? Or are you truly relating to the person of Christ? This is one of my issues, one of my personal hang-ups with modern-day Christianity. So often, we pick up a book on how to relate to Christ, and, and, and it's, it, 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 it may be focused on one particular law, and they give us eight to ten chapters on how to keep that law, and we're going right back into this mode of, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to relate to God through the things that I do, when the Bible is trying to call us to relate to God through the relationship that we have. You're dead to the law, says Paul. He's trying to put it in the, in the most stark terms possible so that we can't miss it. You belong to Jesus. It's great that you're trying to clean up your act, and the Lord is honored when we try to become dead to sin. But ultimately... Our relationship to God, not law-keeping, is what's going to bear fruit. And that's the third part of verse 4. If we have this relationship to Christ where we belong to him, then we will bear good fruit. What's Paul getting at? He's saying inversely that the law did not produce fruit. That as much as we tried to keep the rules, doing the right things and refraining from the wrong things, when we're doing that in our own flesh, we are ultimately do, doing nothing that lasts for eternity. But if we are in Christ and if we are in that relationship, then we will bear fruit. 
Jesus made this abundantly clear in John 15, 5, where he said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus wants to abide and remain and relate to you so that you can ultimately bear the fruit that you were put on this earth to bear. This long-standing theme of the Bible that God's people are supposed to bear fruit. We are given the formula here and in other places throughout the New Testament. The formula is in personal relationship to Christ. Son of Adam, daughter of Eve. God wants, you to, wants to put you back to work in his garden. And he doesn't want you to cultivate apples. He wants you to cultivate souls returning to God. But that necessitates your soul returning to God. You cannot take people to a place that you have not been. You cannot lead others to a place that you are not living. You cannot lead them to the fresh, clean water of the presence of Christ only to give them the murky, muddy water of the law. Your personal relationship with the Lord is what you can lead them toward not towards standards and rules and protocols. Are you in relationship with the Lord today or merely in relationship to the church? Paul puts it in very stark terms. We're going to skip down to verse 6. He says, We are now released from the law. We died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul's saying that there is a written code by which you can try to relate to God. There is a syllabus, but the syllabus only comes to life if you are in relationship with the person who wrote it. Otherwise, these are cold, dead words because they cannot come to life in you unless you are living the life of the Spirit. These are external. This is internal. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 17, you know the Holy Spirit. He says, he dwells with you, my disciples, and he will be in you. This is what Jesus promised, that that the Holy Spirit that dwelled with the disciples that he was relating to in John chapter 14 will one day be in them. Not external to them, but in them. Not in the old way of the written code, where your relationship with God comes from the outside, but in the new way of the Spirit, where your relationship with God comes from the inside out. This is what Jesus said. Now, Greg, leave that verse up on the screen for just a minute because there is present tense and future tense in the words of Jesus to his disciples. He says, you know the Holy Spirit, my disciples, for he dwells with you, and he, where's the future tense, will be in you. Now, how is the Holy Spirit dwelling with the disciples? Where does the Bible say that? 
Try to find me in the book of John, the moment at which the Holy Spirit is like, hey guys, you want to hang out? You're not going to find it. Because the Holy Spirit was dwelling with the disciples through the person of Jesus. That's why. Jesus said the Holy Spirit, who he calls the Comforter, is just like him. So the disciples knew the presence of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. And one day when their sins were covered by the work of Jesus on the cross, they would become able to have that same Holy Spirit living in them. So to put it more succinctly and bring it into our stories, the disciples knew the presence of the Holy Spirit because they knew Jesus. But we know the presence of Jesus because we know the Holy Spirit. That's the present to the future tense, which is now the present tense. The disciples knew the Holy Spirit because they knew Jesus. We know Jesus because we know the Holy Spirit. Is that sinking in? If it's not sinking in, let's, let's, just, let's just hang there for just a minute. Because this is the New Testament. This is the gift that comes from the Father, proceeding from the Son, the Holy Spirit. We know Jesus because we know the Holy Spirit. In the same way the disciples knew the Holy Spirit because they knew Jesus. This is, this is the issue, folks. Do you know the teacher or do you know the written code? Do you know the person who's going to walk you through this faith or do you just know stuff about him? This is the question mark for each one of us to ask ourselves because we are supposed to live this life by the Spirit. Pastor Peter's going to be expounding upon this next week. This is the replacement for the written code right here. Do you have a relationship with Jesus through the Spirit of God? And if you don't, we need to. Otherwise, we're still dead in the old system, and we're not alive in Christ. So when I say to you those weird words, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? That should be code for, have I invited the Holy Spirit into my life? to bring me into relationship with him? That's the question. You say, Pastor Matt, is that the application point of this entire sermon? Yes. Have you invited him in here? That your faith now comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. That you relate to God in real relationship as opposed to just through the written code. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, in most churches today, if someone had preached this sermon, they would then give five easy steps to relating to the Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't want to be that bold. In fact, we already know how to relate to you, Holy Spirit. You who reveal the Lord Jesus to us and teach us about his heart. We pray and we invite you in. 
We say, change me, make me, mold me. I surrender. I don't want to just be a law follower. I want to know the one who died for me. I want to please my Lord and Savior. And I need the one who teaches me about him, who leads me to him, who guides my steps. So in this place today, if you would say honestly, Pastor Matt, I do relate to the church. I do have relationship with church people. But if you ask me honestly, do I have a relationship with Jesus, I would say no. Today I invite you to do something very simple. Ask the Holy Spirit to come in. Ask him to come into your heart and your life and reveal the Lord Jesus to you. Ask him what he would have you submit or surrender that stands between you and him. And ask him to open your ears to what he has to say. Would you pray that prayer in your own way today? If the Lord's speaking to you. Thousand times I've failed, still your mercy remains. Should I stumble again, still I'm caught in your grace, everlasting. Your light will shine when all else fades, never ending. Your glory goes beyond all fame. remains the art of losing myself in bringing you praise everlasting your light will shine when all else fades never ending your glory goes beyond all fame in my heart and my soul Lord I give you control Consume me from the inside out, Lord. Let justice and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out. In my heart and my soul, Lord, I give you control. Consume me from the inside out. 
inside out, Lord. Let justice and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out. Would you guys just stand and sing with me this bridge a couple times? Everlasting, your light will shine when all hell's fate never ending. Your glory goes beyond all fame. And the cry of my heart is to bring you praise from the inside out, Lord, my soul cries out everlasting your light will shine when all hell's fates never ending your glory goes beyond all fame and the cry of my heart is to bring you praise from the inside out Lord my soul cries out from the end side out Lord my soul cries out Lord Lord Jesus no one can force a relationship with you upon any other but you taught us that the Holy Spirit can allow us to cry out and ask Jesus into our hearts. So Lord Jesus, we continue to invite you in. And I pray, Lord, you would grow us not to have a relationship to the church or church people, but to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus that bears fruit for eternity. We thank you for being our teacher today. Dismiss us now with your blessing. Amen.